Well, good evening, and uh, welcome to you all. And uh, welcome to this special Ralph Miliband event on the global financial crisis. And uh, with me this evening, of course, is Will Hutton and Martin Wolf. It's a great honor and a privilege, and I should say a great, great pleasure, for me to introduce these two speakers this evening. Both have had long, distinguished careers and are outstanding economic commentators and journalists. Both have been writing what it's like a old man. How long have you been together? You've been writing for six, five decades, six decades between you. A lot of decades, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Will Hutton is, is chief um, executive of the Work Foundation. Prior to this, he spent four years as the editor in chief of the Observer, and he continues to write a much respected column every week for that paper. He's also, at the moment, a distinguished visiting fellow at the Centre for the Study of Global Governance, which is run by Mary Caldor and myself. Martin Wolf is Associate Editor and Chief Economics Commentator of the Financial Times. He was awarded the CBE in 2000 for services to financial journalism and recently was awarded an honorary degree here for his, the powerful mark he's made in the public domain. Both Will and Martin, of course, have written many best-selling books. I'm just going to mention two. Will's most recent book, is that right? The Writing on the Wall, a book of study of China. And Martin's most recent book, though another is coming, Why Globalization Works. Uh, you don't want to amend the title now. Any, any <laughs> it's my hope that this evening's event uh, will be slightly different from the usual lecture stand-up speak format. I want to really develop a, a conversation between our speakers, get them to reflect on the questions I'm going to ask, and explore perhaps some of the differences in views, although at this moment in time, it seems to me, there is quite a broad shifting to the center ground as people fear what might have happened and what still could happen uh, to the world financial markets and to the banking system. At the end, there'll be time for questions from you. I have to say, unfortunately, that Martin has to leave at 7.35 um, uh, at the latest, but Will and I will remain until 8 o'clock to take further questions. So let me start now with a sleuth of questions, but we'll probably only get through some of them. But let me just ask um, both our speakers the following question, and perhaps you, Martin, could respond initially. How do you compare the current state of the global financial crisis with past great economic and financial calamities? To begin to understand what has and is happening, how should we compare today's events with past economic turbulence and serious economic difficulties? Or to put the question slightly differently, how serious is this crisis compared to the ones that we previously experienced? Okay, it's uh, obviously the right place to start. I'd like to address that in two different ways. First, the experience of the core, quote-unquote, Western countries themselves, particularly the U.S. You immediately start comparing it, of course, and we're all doing that with the Great Depression and subsequent events. I think in terms, if we view it, and I think this is wide consensus, if you view it as a financial crisis, namely a breakdown in the, in the core financial system, the banking system, uh, related to a prior period of extraordinary credit expansion, uh, it certainly is more severe, as, with no doubt in that respect, than anything since the war, which means anything since the 1930s. Now, if you compare it with the 1930s, when a, uh, a third of the banking system, more than a third of the banking system disappeared, 
and when it was conjoined with a massive collapse in the in the uh, stock market um, and subsequently led to a depression in which, uh, if I remember correctly, in the US unemployment reached 25%, um, well commodity prices collapsed, there was a chain of default across the whole world, unemployment levels of that kind were seen across much of Europe. So if you take the whole round of uh, both the context and the economic um, consequences so far, and it, and I would stress I expect it to remain so far. You simply can't compare with what's happening now with that. We've, we haven't even had much of a recession. And so far, we've had something pretty close to flat output. So it's a financial event. It clearly compares with that um, in certain ways. But the response of authorities, the context in which we operate, huge states with huge state spending, the willingness of uh, central banks to provide essentially unlimited liquidity, the sorts of bailouts we see may be very different. I think the second way of looking at this, which is to my mind more, in many ways more interesting, is to remind ourselves, and this is a theme of my new book, which is called Fixing Global Finance, is that this comes at the end of more than 100 more than 100 significant banking crises, often related to exchange rate crises in the world in the last 30 years. And it, interestingly, it has many of similar features to these others. Many of those, of course, occurred in emerging economies. Um, you will think of the Asian financial crisis, Latin American financial crisis, so-called tequila crisis in the mid-90s, and so forth. Um, and, but some of them occurred in developed countries, most famously in Japan in the 90s and in Scandinavia in the early 90s. They all have very similar features. Now, I'm not going to make detailed comparisons now except to make two points. In terms of the losses, the likely losses, we don't know them yet, to the financial system which will be borne ultimately by the taxpayer, in terms of that, it seems overwhelmingly probable, and I've written this in many columns, that this will turn out to be, quote, unquote, a relatively cheap crisis. And by that I mean I can't really see it going much above 5 to 10% of GDP in the US and Western Europe together. Now, believe it or not, that's relatively cheap. Uh, the, there have been many financial crises which have cost between 30 and 50% of GDP uh, to recapitalize financial systems. I can give you a long list of them, Turkey, Argentina twice, Indonesia, and so forth. What makes it significant, of course, and this is my very last point, therefore is not its scale relative to the economies what happened or its characteristics, which are very familiar, unfortunately, in many countries, but where it's happening. The point is, this is a crisis of the core. It is a crisis of the most advanced financial system we have, which is fairly significant, or we thought was the most advanced financial system, and these are the most significant economies. So if these have a significant financial crisis, one, there's no one outside to rescue them, and second, inevitably, it has an effect on the whole world economy, and that effect will unquestionably be a massive global slowdown, which will feel to most people like a global recession. So that's my answer. Will, do you, how far, do you go along with that? B broadly, yeah. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, I, I think that things were incredibly serious two weeks ago. I mean, we had a um, the week of the Wall Street crash in September 29. The market fell, was it, 23 percent? We had a week where it wasn't just Wall Street fell by nearly 20 percent. The European markets fell by 23%, and the Asian markets fell by 23%. And that actual simultaneous fall in uh, world stock markets 
uh, by that percentage of magnitude, you know, was not a feature of um, 929. That sense, it was potentially worse. Then there was a potential domino effect, um, an instantaneity um, about it that did not take place in 29. And there's little or no doubt that if um, Western governments hadn't uh, launched the kind of bailout that they did, uh, along with the guarantees into bank market, you know, we would have had um, a potentially a global depression um, whose severity would have matched that of you know, the early 1930s, notwithstanding all the automatic stabilizers, because our banking system would have been bust not just in the States, which it was very seriously bust, uh, but they, you know, the Euro European banking systems got through in better order, actually, than the American banking system uh, in the 20s and 30s. That wasn't the story. So in that sense, it was potentially worse. Um, and, it's to, uh, and it's to Western government's credit, and I you know, and, and actually, you have to say it. I mean, I think the uh, the combination of, um, first of all, Hank Paulson buying, biting the bullet in the way that he did, and actually reversing, you know, deeply held views as a as a as a man who believes in markets and coming up with his Paulson plan, then uh, it not being enough and it having to be re and recasting it in the light of what uh, Brown, the Brown government came up with in Britain, Sarkozy in Europe offering great leadership. Um, with Brown of the European Union, so that you know, there we are. This time last week, we had this event last week. I mean, uh, by by this time, the British, French, and German governments had announced versions of the Brown Plan. Um, we already had announced in the morning what we we're going to do with our banks. We, the Spanish government, were, were was beginning talks. The Americans were about to recast the Paulson Plan. We moved so fast, and we staved off potential disaster. I agree with um, uh, Martin. I mean the. Uh, Japan had its lost decade uh, in the 1990s. Um, Latin America had its lost decade in the 1980s. Um, you know, other parts of the world have been riven by um, financial crises of this magnitude or worse. What's different is this has happened in the core. But it happening in the core does make it serious. Um, so, you know, uh, and the other point I want to make before I wind up is the, is the um, I think the, you know, $10 trillion worth of securitized assets, $60 trillion worth of, of um, credit default swaps. These numbers are just the, the scale of financialization um, and the volume of transactions in the financial markets dwarfs by very many times um, and what was taking place uh, even actually in the outside the core in the 80s and the 90s and certainly when you go back to the 30s. And in that sense, you know, this was, um, we, we found that, you know, that the size of the financial sector in some states, I mean, Iceland is a good example, Ireland is another, Luxembourg is another, even the city of London and Britain, you know, these financial sectors and the amount of transactions and the scale of balance sheet support that would be required if things went wrong was so beyond the particular states. There was another feature of this which hasn't taken place before. This is right up there um, in, uh, in, in, in serious financial moments, in my view. Can I ask you both, did you, did you, as economic commentators over decades, I mean, did you see this coming? Did either of you see this coming? And if so, how? And what did, you, what did you see coming? And if not, what does that tell us about our, our knowledge, our economic knowledge, and our capacity to, 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 to understand trends and developments? Well, well um, <laughs> uh, some of you may have read my book, The State We're In, and that I wrote in the mid-1990s, where I argued that um, the, the city of London was too powerful, that um, the prioritization of um, finance over 
Other objectives was uh, A, unbalancing the economy, and it was unbalancing the priorities of, of uh, British managements. Um, and I've stuck to that view throughout. Um, I, uh, like, like Martin, it became very obvious. In, uh, during the, when, when the Asian financial crisis hit, um, you could see a pattern of ever, ever greater financial crises. And I remember writing the, the next one could you know, get into the core. Um, when um, it was obvious um, to both Martin and me, and I might have speak for himself, but I mean, you know, in the 12 months up to when it all went, began to go wrong in the summer of 2007, you know, I, it was plain that property prices were too high. It was plain it was going to be a correction of the property market. It was plain it was going to cause financial difficulties. When Northern Rock got in difficulty, I um, wrote a piece saying it must be taken to public ownership, and, and that must be announced on the Monday morning. What they did, well, that's what they didn't do. And during that autumn, I argued that um, we wouldn't get through the scale of this crisis, which is the worst I'd ever ever been idly th through as a financial journalist. Uh, I couldn't see how it was going to take get through it unless there'd be further major institutions taken into public leading banks. And I had in mind, though I didn't name it, both Royal Bank of Scotland and HBOS. So, did I? But did I see um, a systemic financial crisis that would shake the entire Western banking system? No, I did not. Um, and uh, I thought I thought we'd get through uh, with some. I thought it would be a much much worse version of 1974-5 when that West nearly went bust. That's what I thought. Um, I didn't think that um, the domino effect that we've witnessed would actually take place. And if you'd asked me um, whether we've watched the Americans, you know, nearly half a trillion dollars be, uh, be involved by Western governments in a matter of seven days in the recapitulation of the banking systems, I'd have said, what have you been smoking? I think Will has been impressively honest. Um, and I'm going to try to be equally honest. I think m the answer is I did not, quite clearly did not see what has happened in the last month or two. So not, there's no doubt at all uh, that a breakdown of this kind in the core financial system, basically a situation in which I've described, in which the financial system as a system, namely a set of interrelated parts trading freely with, with one another, uh, a network disintegrated um, effectively completely I did not foresee uh, and uh, and I admit it freely I think I'm in fairly good company on this but I certainly didn't see this crisis we've seen in the last six to eight months I think there are two things that I did write quite a bit about so I can point to what I thought, saw, perhaps three things that I thought of as unsustainable trends, though I didn't know how they would end. The first, which has already been mentioned, that there were a number of housing bubbles, particularly here. started writing about that in 2003, as usual, far too early, um, which was completely discredited me, of course. Um, the worst thing about the bubbles is identifying them too far too early makes you look ridiculous, particularly if you advise your sons not to buy houses as a result. Um, the second thing that I have emphasized particularly is indeed a core theme of my book as unsustainable was what I saw as, as it were, the solution the world had come up to, by accident really, to the problems of emerging market crises, which was uh, the shifting of the world serving, saving surplus, which had risen to an extraordinary level in the early part of this decade, into essentially it's absor the absorption of the world saving surplus into um, 
to uh, a limited number of rich countries, particularly the US. And if you looked at the domestic counterpart of that, it was clear this was all household borrowing. It was basically going to finance household borrowing. And that was associated with a, an explosive rise in household indebtedness, both in the US and UK. This is a theme which I got actually largely from Wynne Godley's important work. I emphasized it many times. And it seemed to me a massive point of vulnerability for the whole system because these were clearly trends that couldn't correct, that would have to correct. I assume the external problem, namely the dollar problem, would be more significant than the internal one. That was wrong. The third element, which I did identify, but again, I got this largely from the work, very, very important work of the most prescient of the international institutions, the BIS under Bill White's uh, intellectual leadership, was the emphasis on monetary policy, credit expansion, the, dis the disappearance of risk uh, as a factor in determining uh, interest rate spreads. I mean, basically, the complete collapse of risk spreads in the system, uh, n n which is just another way of saying the almost complete collapse of risk aversion. And we know from history very clear in Minsky's work that such collapses of risk aversion as shown in markets always reverse themselves and when they reverse themselves they tend to overshoot in the other direction so I've written quite a lot of pieces saying well what would happen when that happened that was a quite widely shared view in the even in the official community let alone the people who were worried you know, if you look at the reports for instance of our own central bank uh, the Bank of England they constantly emphasize this theme so perhaps if I'd been smart enough, I would have put these three pieces together and said, hey, presto, the world banking system is going to implode. But what I assumed is that there was going to be a correction. It would probably be quite messy. Uh, there will be some real macroeconomic strain associated with it. It's on other parts of the world that would have to absorb these surpluses. But what we've seen in the last few months is, to be quite honest, far outside the worst things that I could imagine. So in sum, that's a yes and a no. Um, elements of it, yes, but the systemic quality of it, the sheer systemic range of the problems, probably not, which is true, I suspect, for... Probably just shows that... For everyone, actually. No, I think... Stupid little than we would like to be. No, I think that you know, history has a way of creating unexpected uh, outcomes, which takes me on to, to the roots of the crisis, really. I want to just see if you could spend just a few moments shedding some lights on how far back in time we have to go to understand the form and dynamics of what has happened. Is it 1979, Big Bang, deregulation, lifting of capital restrictions and so on, the growth of the financial markets and financial turnover relative to the real economy and so on? Where would you, where would you begin? You can't obviously develop a, a full account of that this evening, but where would you begin to point to? What would you begin to point to? Um, but I mean, I, you know, I mean, it's an arbitrary date. But I think, I think the, I think the arrival in Big Bang and the arrival in London of um, American um, investment banks who were able to do in London what they weren't able to do in New York because it was prohibited by Glass-Steagall was actually the beginnings of it. Um, securitization, which was also taking place in the 1980s uh, by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, fun enough, um, began to be copied. Uh, by those investment banks. Um, that Then I think the abolition of Glass-Steagall in 1998 was on a key date. Um, and then th really it's been the last, I mean, securitization took off hugely post-Glass-Steagall's, um, and we had $10 trillion worth of securitized income streams um, insured by credit default and credit default swaps, actually, um, in, that, in that decade. And it was that, really, that led to the immense leverage um, 
that were the, the, the big five inve US investment banks had, you know, amazing uh, carrying, uh, I mean, 30, 35 times uh, the assets on their balance sheets uh, compared to their capital. Um, you then, and, the, and you got to a point where um, so much um, leverage was being underwritten by so little balance sheet strength that, and the actual structure, uh, an intellectual mistake, I think, of, of um, securitization that actually, while you might secure um, one income stream, uh, you can insure one income stream, you couldn't, you couldn't collectively insure them all. The system couldn't insure itself against um, an economic downturn, and it certainly couldn't insure itself against uh, a, 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 a very substantial loss appearing um, in any in link in the chain. And we got to that point in 2007, and the trigger was the subprime crisis, but I think it could have been anything else. Um, so for me, it's a story that begins in the mid-1980s. Uh, it has its roots back there. I don't know what you think, Martin. I think the, it's clear that financial deregulation and financial innovation. Financial innovation seems always to play a quite an important part in crises of this kind. It's a sort of classic account <coughs> of the 20s. J.K. Galbraith, for instance, emphasized this element. And one of the characteristics of financial innovation is it's a way of concealing and exaggerating leverage, which is what Will has been talking about. I would just add a, some, a, a few other considerations to this. First, it's an obvious theme. Um, for absolutely fundamental reasons, it's a central part of financial economics, but go beyond, beyond that. A f financial system is very unstable. It's inherently very unstable. The, uh, it's unstable partly because of its institutional form. Um, leverage of enormous uh, proportions is an inherent part of all contemporary financial systems, which is why we've had so many cases with these enormous losses that I mentioned. I mean, in essence, if you have a system which is normally, quote unquote, levered about 20 to 1, that's about, so there's one 5% of equity in, against, uh, and all the rest, 95% is debt. You really need relatively small losses and relatively small mistakes on the valuation of underlying assets. Pretty easy to do, and you've got a bust financial system. And that's happened again and again and again and again. And what Will said is right. The people can think they protected themselves against it, but there isn't enough capital in the system to protect themselves, protect them against it. The only entity that has capital enough to protect this is the government, which is just another way of saying something I've made point I've made many, many times. The banking system is part of the state everywhere. It can't be anything else because essentially we've, give, we've delegated to the banking system uh, an incredibly valuable public monopoly, that of creating money. That's what it does. And the, i.e., we allow them to say that their deposits are equivalent to real money. And once you do that, you've got to you emphasize this fragility. I won't go into all the obvious other problems, asymmetric information, all the other characteristics of the financial system, but that's just, it's going to do things like this from time to time. Now that's obviously made much worse if you've got a general view 
the, a very strong general view in favor of deregulation. But it's actually, and that goes without saying, but it's interesting in this case to emphasize some very perverse consequences of incompetent regulation. It's not that the banking system isn't regulated, it was, but one of the characteristics, for example, just one, is that there were uh, quite significant capital requirements imposed against banks, but in many cases they were allowed to set off off-balance sheet ent entities, conduits, spe special investment vehicles, to put this sort of paper in, and no capital was charged against it. Now, that was in the regulatory schema. The regulators allowed that sort of arbitrage to occur, and regulatory arbitrage has been a very big feature of this. Now, let me just mention two macro factors, which I think are linked. Um, I've already mentioned the, there are two background, three background global environment conditions. Very low inflation, which encouraged very easy monetary policy for a long time, which I think is essentially related to the globalization phenomenon, um, the entry of China and all the rest of it. The, um, the, uh, um, the emergence in the late 1990s and particularly 2000s of absolutely colossal uh, saving surpluses in many countries aggregating to close to $2 trillion a year, which had to be absorbed somewhere. And as a result of those two phenomena together, there's no doubt, in retrospect, a pretty significant monetary policy mistake, um, namely incredibly easy monetary policy, not just the US. Basically, we had an environment in which the Japanese had zero interest rates, the US had one, and the ECB had two for about three or four years. It's an incredibly lax monetary environment. So if you add that fuel to the fragility you mentioned, what Will was talking about, uh, and the very low long-term real interest rates, which I think are related to the savings surplus question, you basically create an environment in which borrowing seemed, to, borrowing seemed to be pretty well a free good. And there was no regulator trying to restrict this at all. And I think that's why we ended up where we are. There's one thing I would like just to add just to that, because I don't think, I'd be very surprised, um, and I may be wrong, uh, but I'd be very surprised if um, the majority of the audience understand the difference between a bond and a securitized income flow. Do you? I think it might just be worth a minute doing this because it is really important. Because uh, you'll get, you'll, you'll just get actually uh, perhaps a deeper insight into actually just the scale of regulatory failure. I'm sorry about this, but some rustling of oh my god, like I might leave during this bit. Uh, just stay with me because it's important. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you issue a bond, okay, for, if a company issues a bond. Uh, two things happen. One, it may be making, say it's a bond of a, the company uh, is making, let's say, a billion pound profit and issues a billion pound bond on which it pays a 5% coupon. Um, its billion pound of profit is the profit out of which it's going to pay the 50 million pounds of coupon. 5% of the billion is 50 million. So even if profits halve, um, the interest payments and actually the servicing of the principal is more than covered by the profitability of the, of the organization in question. And even there's a very severe downturn, the bondholder's probably going to be okay, and it's, it's secured against the assets of the company. Now, um, Martin mentioned this, and it's really worth um, highlighting it. I mean, in 2000, there was al almost no um, securitization of, of uh, uh, there were, the, the, the amount of securitized assets in that were traded were trivial. I mean, probably, you know, you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions, maybe, maybe, maybe billions, but not trillions. Uh, there's now $10 trillion worth of securitized assets. And what they are are this. I'm the company, and what I do is, is I say, rather than pay you 50 million pounds a year and have my profits of one billion, I'm going to hypothecate one of my income streams that I, that I as a company get. If I'm a utility, I might own a port facility, and I get tariffs from the port, and that adds up to 50 million. 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to place those 50 million in a special purpose vehicle. Uh, and that's going to be the income that services the one billion pound that you're going to pay me for that, uh, for, that, for that revenue stream. You then turn to a credit rating agency, Standard Poor's or Moody, and you say, well, um, is this equivalent to um, a AAA bond? And at this point, any regulator should start to say, well, hold on a second. If profits, in the circumstances in which profits halve from a billion to 500 million holding a bond, the bond is probably going to be okay. In those circumstances, um, a port, you know, the, the tariffs on a port, or mortgage payments, or whatever it might be, are likely to be hit. And the 50 million will go to 45 million to 40 million, and this bond is, not going, to be, is going to be worth much less. It's certainly not worth the AAA rating that the Standard & Poor's and Moody's are giving it. And the idea that I could take a credit default um, insurance policy out on it to insure against that eventuality to, uh, to make it less risky, and then call it credit default swap, so I could swap out of that policy if I choose, I can sell it to you rather than hold it myself. That in the, if you're a regulator watching from in 2000 virtually no securitization of revenue, to 2007, $10 trillion worth of this, to watch a credit default swap market of uh, some low, I mean, a trillion or two, mushroom to 60 trillion over a seven year period. And this was happening in Britain, in New York. I mean, what were our regulators doing? Um, and it was all taking place off balance sheet. And as Martin says, you know, it was an accident waiting to happen. Sorry, I just needed no, to explain I, that. That's, you have ignored the tranches, but I'm going to ignore them too. We could do the tranches. We well, could do the tranches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite as simple as that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, want, I want to push on to a slightly different agenda in the second half, but let me just, just get you to spend just a couple of minutes each, because this is the bit most people know about. Just briefly say, I mean, what have been the main features of the crisis? Very, very briefly, because most of us read this in the newspapers all the time. And secondly, what have been the strengths and weaknesses of the policy response in the UK, the EU, the USA, and beyond that? So let's just take this together. And you should assume reasonable familiarity on this, because that is what we read all the time. Martin. OK, uh, let me just do it sort of analytically rather than blow by blow. Good. I think the, the starting point was the assumption right at the beginning, which I wrote about a lot, there was this correction. Um, and that was showing itself up in widening spreads on interbank uh, borrowing and on other riskier assets. That seemed fine. That's exactly what should have happened. There was a liquidity problem for some institutions. And central banks started providing liquidity uh, into the markets fairly quickly. It's well known and I think reasonable to say that because of its policies on uh, collateral, the Bank of England was the slowest on that. And the ECB was the first. Uh, interestingly, as even the ECB will admit, that was largely because they, when they joined all the banks together, they simply added together the collateral policies of all the banks and adopted the easiest in each case. So they happened to have the easiest policy on collateral in terms of what they would take right from the beginning. But liquidity was provided. Um, and in retrospect, what has become pretty obvious, uh, and it became reasonably obvious quite soon, but the extent to which it, be it was the case became obvious rather slowly. Um, it became obvious that the real thing that was driving the markets 
was a profound concern about the solvency of counterparties. And the reason that became such a big issue is very much related to this question, is they knew they had all these quote-unquote toxic assets, but the problem is nobody knew what they were worth, including the people who held them, or at least if they did, they weren't telling anybody. And the result of that is, and we knew that they were spread everywhere, <coughs> at least half of this stuff, not half, 40 to 50% of this American stuff, leave aside the other stuff, is in Europe. So one of the great achievements of securitization is that it spread bad stuff everywhere and nobody knew where. So you had this real problem of worries about, worries about the solvency of counterparties. This then came much worse when significant parties just started going bust and it reached apogee when Lehman disappeared. And then everybody got really nervous. Now, in turn, so that we ended up with the solvency crisis and that was finally recognized and that's why the capitalization, recapitalization programs are so important. We're not through this by any means. Now, in terms of recognition, I think we recognize the, the Bank of England recognized the liquidity problem too, too late, bad for the bank. The ECB got there first. The Fed has been incredibly aggressive in liquidity throughout. I don't even really criticize them. Today, the Fed is emerging as probably the most important commercial bank in, in the United States. I mean, so I think you can say they're being fairly free on that. The Bank of England did quite well on the special liquidity scheme, very neat scheme, the only one that's offering liquidity for three years. Questions about the timing. I would say the, say the central banks have all been sort of okay. We can have a big argument about this. Now, the governments. Well, the governments were unbelievably slow, quote unquote, but then so was I, I'm afraid, in recognizing how deep the capital capitalization problem was. Uh, we thought these was a, there were a number of relatively small institutions, relatively unimportant, even Bear Stearns, relatively unimportant, which had a serious capital problem, but gen and they could be wound up. But generally, the banking system was adequately capitalized. Um, and that was, in retrospect, and I accept that for me myself to a serious error. The point at which governments finally realized that was a really serious error was really September. And um, it's at that stage that the whole crisis was blew up and that the response of governments reached uh, 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 um, a real peak. Now, an interesting question, leaving aside their response to getting there, should governments have realized eight, ten months ago that they were facing a situation in which they had to nationalize or infuse capital into most of the core banking system? And the answer to that is maybe they should, but it would have been, I think, really hard for them to recognize that at that stage because it depended on their views of the ultimate collapse in the underlying value of the assets concerned. And they were, perhaps wrongly, rather more optimistic than it turned out to be reasonable on that point. I think history will say, if you compare it with the Japanese banking crisis, them eight years to, to recapitalize, or the uh, even the Scandinavian banking crisis, let alone the 30s. And the history will say they really screwed up in getting into this mess. I don't think there's any doubt we will all be blamed for that. But I actually think the last year, in terms of the scale of the response and speed, a year is not a long time in these sorts of crises, and the, the cooperation that we've seen in the last few weeks, I think it's actually quite impressive. Now, I'm sure that nobody here will agree with me, but I think 
from the point of view of the policy response since the crisis began, it could have been a hell of a sight worse. Will, do you agree? I do agree with that, I, but I am, bit, I am concerned. I am very concerned about the... I mean, we've stabilised the situation. Um, we've stopped there being... I mean, I think there won't be a Great Depression. Um, and uh, we've, uh, as Adair Turner said, introduced the Financial Times, who's the chairman of the, uh, of the FSA. We've kind of... We've, um, we've kind of sorted out the kind of basic plumbing in the international financial system. Good. But here's my point. Um, we actually need, uh, we don't, we, we can't allow the system to deleverage too quickly. You know, we've got an awful lot of debt out there. There's $10 trillion worth of securitized assets. We need people to hold them. Um, we also need people to add to them if we're not going to have a very, very deep recession. And uh, you know, my concern is that the way we've set about this, and I think it's, I think actually, I'm very concerned about the way we've done it in Britain. Actually, I think they've done it. Uh, uh, they've done it. Uh, I think better in the States. The way we've done it in in, in Britain is um, we've done. I think I, we've made two uh, potential serious mistakes. Mistake one is that we didn't bring all the banks um, into the recapitalisation program. Um, so there's an open question what, how Barclays and HSBC will behave. Secondly, I think we, the terms of it have been far too tough. And we need these banks to lend. I want, the, I want our banks to lend. I want them to reopen the a virtually closed mortgage finance market. I don't know if you saw the numbers today, but I mean, you know, mortgages are down to, you know, mortgage advances are running at some fraction of the, of, the, of the level they were running at 18 months ago. You know, it's not inconceivable that house prices could fall by a third, 40%, 50%. And these are, that'll be associated with very, very low levels of consumption growth, uh, very long and potential further danger for some of our lending institutions. You know, I want, I want working capital for small and medium-sized businesses. I'd love to see some serious lending to you know, uh, our, our manufacturing sector. You won't get it when they're all anxious to pay off these preference shares in which they're paying 12%. And the second thing is, at a global level, is that the system has worked because the securit securitization has, got, has been insured. And the, the insurance system has failed, actually. And uh, one of two things has to happen. Either some of these toxic debt, and Martin has argued this and so have I, has to be taken over by Vodacom as a bad bank, which actually is what happened in, in Sweden. Securum was the name of the bad bank. Or we have to do what Lloyds of London did, setting up an organization called Equitas, which, when Lloyds got into trouble with bad insurance, with bad reinsurance companies, they, they had to net them out over a period. They net them out over 20 years. That's far too long for us. We need, we may need, to set up Invertecom as a bad insurance company, in which some of the um, dud credit default swaps are uh, placed, um, and this, and we may need governments actually to to move from not just guaranteeing loans in the interbank market to actually getting into the insurance business of actually insuring um, securities. James Crosby, former ch uh, chief executive um, of HBOS, has got a scheme for insuring uh, issues of residential mortgage-backed securities as a way of reopening that market. And I think before the crisis is over, we're going to have to get into the insurance business. And I think it was a mistake um, that the recapitalization of the banks was done on such a haphazard basis, simultaneously kicking them in the teeth and wanting to lend. And that's an incompatibility of objective which, which we may rue in the months ahead. W without speaking to that at length, do, do you agree with that? Or, 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 where, or where exactly? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. On the, uh, 
the recapitalization plan, uh, I, I do because uh, I wrote about that last week. I think the, um, I'm not completely sure, I'm genuinely not sure whether it should have been compulsory. And one of the funny things about the US is when it does things seriously, it doesn't pay, pay any attention to things like freedom of property. So Mr. Paulson went to the nine banks he was dealing with and said, we need uh, volunteers to take the state's capital and, and you're all volunteering. Uh, we have a much more laissez-faire and liberal approach to these things, and it may well turn out that that was a mistake. I think it's a correctable mistake, yeah. if it proves to be the case. The, I am much more worried, as, as Will says, we are, the government is caught in a, in a, in a, quite rightly in a dilemma. It, needs, it wants to get the taxpayers' money back, and it's absolutely right to want to get the taxpayers' money back. And, and, uh, and uh, it, uh, um, at the same time, it wants these institutions to lend, and it has decided, I think rightly, not to just nationalize them outright. Uh, um, but that's a separate question. I think that's a balance in which they've gone too far in the direction of making sure the taxpayer gets money back. 12% yield on this, since they're certainly going to get their money back in the end, these are viable businesses as long as the economy is viable, it looks to me excessive. And I do fear that that will lead to, it will clearly lead to bigger spreads on their lending, and it will probably lead to accelerated repayment instead of offering credit. Now, whether I, there are some areas of insurance I think the government will have to get into. Um, generalized insurance of the whole range of credit in the economy, um, as you'd expect, worries me somewhat, um, not least because I think all that mortgage lending that Will wants to do will turn out to be loss-making, because I do believe the, the house prices are going to go down that far. Thank you. Well, you, you both talked about the cost of, um, the, uh, on the banks, of the cost of the preference shares, the 12% and so on. But let me, bearing that in mind, let me just ask you a question very bluntly now, which uh, is a question that uh, if Karl Marx were here, he would look wryly at you and say, well, look, excuse me, I remind you what I wrote in the Communist Manifesto, that the state is but an executive committee of the bourgeoisie. Or to put the point differently, to what extent is it true that states have socialized, i.e. picked up the risks and costs of reckless economic behavior, while leaving the bank and financial sectors largely unreformed so far, and thereby free, free to repeat this behavior in the future? Can I go with that? Go with it. I was thinking about it. My initial answer was going to be, yeah, well, what's new? But, the, but it's more interesting than that. I think, because it actually relates to what the nature of the class struggle, Jerry, if you're going to be Marxian about it. Um, Marx's bourgeoisie, of course, were the owners of capital, the owners of financial capital. In this context, they would presumably be the shareholders. Uh, the shareholders of banks, uh, they had a few good years, I don't deny that, but they are getting, getting pretty thoroughly creamed. And, uh, and uh, uh, including relative innocence like all those sovereign wealth funds that plonked money into these undervalued banks 10, years, 10 months ago and are now, or a year ago and are now sitting on the most monstrous losses. So I think the bourgeoisie, as it were, the outside shareholder is being pretty well creamed. The people who do very well in this are the new bourgeoisie, which is the, the super elite employee. 
the people who got uh, the people who did get the bonuses did get out before the shares in their companies collapsed and are now sitting happily at home with those bonuses. We're not going to have retrospective taxation, in my view, rightly, so we're not going to get all that money back from them to pay for the mess. Now, of course, there are lots of employees, vast number of employees, who got these bonuses which were locked up in shares, and that's that, chums. Um, but it's clear that uh, there are some people, and I think it's particularly the super elite employee, that is, and the really striking characteristic of quote-unquote modern capitalism, it's been pointed out in much of the literature recently, is the emergence of this stupendously highly play, paid uh, proletariat, uh, if I, one can use the, this term uh, in, this, in this context. The bigger point, the bigger point, however, I would like to make is the state is the arm of the political class, whoever that political class may be. And in our contexts, our societies, it reflects the interests of a very large majority of people. And the, one of the interests of a very large majority of people is to keep a functioning financial system. So the state, as I've tried to repeat again and again, always saves financial systems unless the state itself is bust. The only financial systems that have been allowed to go down in the last 30 or 40 years have been financial systems where the state itself was bust. Argentina 2001 is a good example, a very rare phenomenon. Now, in the process of saving the financial system, of course it's socializing the losses that the, the financial system has so brilliantly created in the preceding boom. That's why it has to do it. And in so doing, it, it rescues all the people, whoever they may be, who were engaged with those institutions and made money out of them. Some of them are the employees. Many of them are people who dealt with them. So many of them actually, I mean, this is a lovely comment that's just been made in our paper on Saturday, I think, from one of the hedge funds that's done so well out of selling oh, yes, shares yeah. short. Well, all those, those transactions have been made good by in part the state, uh, otherwise the counterparties would have all disappeared or many of them would have disappeared and they could have made their money. It is clear that it is in the nature of a financial system that ultimately losses, if they get to the point that the private equity cannot bear them, are always socialized and that is the fundamental understanding one has to have in forming any regulatory regime. The beneficiaries, they vary over time. Um, sometimes, actually, it's, it's state banks that have been involved in this. Well, there's a... Well, the, the, well, uh, Fairness, social justice, yeah, I mean, this people is losing their houses, jobs right, right. increases. I mean, we have, we have watched... And I mean, bonuses, 80% of bonuses still being paid. Whoa, I know, I know, I know. I, whoa. <laughs> I mean, I don't know whether to really kind of, you know, go for it or not here. Probably go for it. But I mean, this is your moment. I mean, what a, what a. Yeah, work yourself up. What? A, where does one begin? Um, uh, uh, where does where do we begin? I mean, the uh, the kind of money that was paid um, uh, to in in the financial sector over the last five years, I mean, is not is beyond the dreams of Croesus. It's outrageous. Uh, I mean, it's beyond any uh, beyond any conception of what value was actually being added. I mean, when you, I don't believe anybody systematically year after year um, is worth ten, fifteen, twenty million pounds a year. I don't know how you can justify that value. And actually, what was happening was was that I mean, there was one occasion, and I know a, a, a manager of a hedge fund who, in one year, um, was having a wrangle with the um, owners of the hedge fund. The hedge fund had made $540 million. He was paid $200 million. His basic salary was about half a million dollars, and he got a huge bonus. 
and he was complaining that the 200 million he got paid didn't conform to industry norms, and he was arguing, he was arguing for 270. In other words, in any one year, half the gain went to him as the manager, and half went to people who put it in the hedge fund. Now, of course, in year two, when the markets went down, he'd go back to getting his basic, his, his basic salary, having pocketed the $270 million that you might have thought the people who'd given him the money to manage would like to have seen some part of in year one to compensate them yeah, for what's going on in year idiots, two. They? they were absolute idiots. Um, We've both uh, written about that. <laughs> but I mean, the, this was, but I mean, idiotic remuneration structures um, like that were um, um, commonplace. Um, uh, alpha pay for kind of beta or even gamma performance. Um, and now, you know, the, with the world on the brink, um, the state has had to um, step in. And one has to then say, um, what, is the, what, is the, what is the social and economic value of banking? It is indeed taking short-term deposits and turning them to medium and long-term loans. I mean, that's where, that's where the value added lies in banking. And as Martin has said, it, you know, with any kind of leverage, you know, it's quite easy to make a big mistake and work out, wipe out your capital. But we've lived in a world in which, you know, where the, who gets those long-term loans, you know, the state should be completely indifferent to, and the state can be, and the state should actually light touch regulate and the context in which that is taking place. What we have learnt, all of us collectively, is that, um, and I would actually add um, not just banks to the list. I mean, there are very, very few uh, firms and sectors where there isn't an independence between the public sphere and the market. I mean, the utilities is one obvious area, and Martin has written, and I agree with him, that commercial banking, in some respects, should be regarded as a, as a base utility and should never have been paid this kind of money. But there's a lot of other areas. I mean, pharmaceuticals, aerospace, defense, uh, retailing, uh, where, you know, the, I mean, where, where are supermarkets located? The politics of that. You know, the very few areas where um, actually there isn't an interdependence between uh, a business model of a firm, which makes recurrent income over time, and actually the politics of it. And I, I, I don't think that one needs to make it kind of uh, to say that that therefore means that actually um, the state is the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. The state in a democracy, in a liberal democratic society, actually does speak for a collective interest, it seems to me. Um, and that collective interest is that we have a functioning banking system. What that, but the quid pro quo of that is that those that, those that run it have absolutely no right um, to pay themselves the kind of money that they paid themselves. And, the, and it showed phenomenal weaknesses in British, British corporate governance, unbelievable weaknesses in corporate governance. And actually now, I actually think, and I've been playing this idea, I still don't know quite how it could be designed, but I think we can't retrospectively tax, obviously, but we could consider a wealth tax, could we not? Uh, it's, I mean, some of the pe a lot of the people are sitting on fortunes uh, huge uh, as a result of what took place the last five years. Um, to have to pay for it, you might, might get a time-limited wealth tax. I, I can try to think of how to devise a wealth tax that would actually do what you wanted to do, which is to say, we have an interest in the money that you've made. Well, it, I mean, we can come back to that in discussion afterwards. There are a lot of issues that, you know, I, that I would like to, to push you on a little bit more. But I'm, I'm, I'm aware that um, Martin has to go in about 10 minutes, and there's one other general you question. You didn't that, even mention carried uh, interest. Mm -hmm. There's one other general question <laughs> I'd like right. to get I could have done that. I, oh, my God. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> you can in 10 minutes. You can in 10 minutes. But let me just get in one other general question, which is about the role of international financial institutions. Because it is very striking, you know, watching the current crisis unfold, 
is actually the international institutions have been seemingly quite quiet. They've been passive observers of what's been going on. They haven't had, or seemingly have, an active role in shaping it and creating early warning systems, shaping it, producing policy initiatives and so on. And those initiatives eventually have come from the states rather than the international institutional structure. Um, what is your assessment of that? What is the role of the IMF in all of this? And what, going forward, do we need to think about in order to consider what these the institutions might have to be like, how it might have to change going forward? Okay. Um, yeah. It, when we get into a mess like this, the first thing that happens is people say, why didn't the international organizations do anything about this? It seems to be a bit unfair because they had really next to no role. I've already mentioned that the... BIS, a very specialized bank for international settlements sitting in Basel, uh, actually has a very respectable role in warning about this. And uh, of course, it was not really ignored, actually. There were quite big efforts to suppress it. Um, it's also quite uh, scandalous. But just step back a moment and ask ourselves, well, what role can international organizations play in a crisis of this kind? We are talking... I have a line which I frequently trot out is that the IMF has two classes of countries over which it never has any influence whatsoever. The first class contains one member, it's the United States. This is a consistent pattern. It was designed to ensure that it would have no influence over the United States and it has no influence over the United States. One has to recognize power. The second class of countries are creditor countries. And I've already indicated to you that a part, in my view, of the background to this, I'm not overstressing, just part of the background was these enormous global imbalances over which the IMF had no influence because it has no influence over creditor countries. And that's not an accident because one of the reasons the creditor countries all became creditor countries was precisely to ensure that the IMF would never have any influence over them because that was the problem they had the last time. So that left the IMF with very little influence over important players in the run-up to this. Then you get the crisis. Well, as we've recently seen in dealing with these crises, we are talking trillions of dollars, uh, uh, but even trillions of pounds. Uh, the IMF, poor thing, poor shrunken thing, has lendable resources of about, it varies with the price of the dollar, about $300 billion. So its firepower is irrelevant. In any case, all the IMF can offer these countries, more important, is their own currencies, because these are the most valuable currencies in the world. They are the world's hard currencies. And the United States doesn't need the IMF to give it dollars. It can print them, and it is. And ditto with, with pounds and euros and all the rest of it. So the IMF is completely irrelevant in terms of giving resources to these countries. These are the ultimate so sovereign borrowers of the world. Uh, now, if we get into the situation when these countries can't borrow in world markets, you're sitting on a hyperinflation situation, but we're not, we're not there yet. So the IMF can't do any of this. What can the IMF do? It'll do what it can do. It can, it can advise and warn. Actually, to be fair to it, in the last, particularly under Dominic Strauss-Kahn, it's been rather brave, as these things go, uh, in its warnings, and uh, rather sensible in its advice. And 
The second thing the IMF can do, which is, I think, really very important, is to help all the emerging economies that can't print currencies that everybody else is willing to take, uh, who are now going to be in the most terrible trouble. I'm sure you've all noticed that we have a whole slew of emerging economies in very considerable difficulty who will need a lot of funding. The problem is, in my view, and I've written this in my book, the IMF is far too small to help them effectively. And a lot of countries are going to hit very, very big crises as a result, and they will be the very serious victims of this of this, um, uh, of this uh, uh, situation. We need a much bigger IMF with much less conditional lending. It's a view I developed in the 97-98 um, crisis and even more since then when we've seen this incredible growth of self-insurance by emerging economies which have built up reserves of close to $7 trillion merely to, in order to avoid this problem. Now, the good side of that is that many big emerging economies do have a lot of reserves and should be able to sustain their growth even in this situation. That is one of the more encouraging things. But many will not. There'll be an I'm not going to list them now, but there will be a long list of countries that will be very badly affected. Now, I'd like to go away from the IMF and just make one final point. It is clear, regardless of what I've said, that a financial crisis in the current world is a global crisis because the banks are all global, the markets are all global. What each country does affects all the others. We've seen that most notably in the famous case of the Irish guarantees and their, their indirect consequences. We can't have a situation in which every government decides to deal with its own banks in its own slightly different way, or even very different way. It creates incredible distortions. And indeed, there are lots of other deep conceptual problems. We've, we found that the difference in bankruptcy regimes across countries is a very big problem, and that was shown very clearly in the Lehman case. I won't go into the detail. And of course, we have very big problems, as we've seen in another case, which I won't mention. Uh, if a country takes over the uh, banking system and finds that most of its assets and liabilities are abroad and doesn't really care much about all those foreign depositors. So what are we going to do about that? There is a very powerful case for saying that if we're going to have a global financial system, we need a global structure of regulation and support. The problem is ultimately the support is fiscal, and fiscal is national. This is a really fundamental core problem. But the only way out of that is to defragment, disintegrate the whole global financial system. And the only way you can do that is imposing exchange controls everywhere. And I don't think they're going to happen, and I certainly wouldn't personally favor them. So I would say we are in a very uncomfortable half-and-half half world in terms of having a global financial system without a global structure of dealing with it, regulating, and all the rest of it. You'll have lots of time to get me in this. Um, I think it's an incredibly important problem. And even within the EU, though they did it remarkably last week, quite remarkably, many, many problems remain outstanding in knowing how to handle this financial system. This is a massive wake-up call, but we don't have an answer. Listen, before you respond, Will, and then perhaps... No, you can bring take a few more minutes. Can you? To All right. Will. I, can, I, look, I mean, I, um, I, I agree with uh, um, what Martin has said. I think one can specifically identify things that um, weren't there and need to be there. Uh, I mean, first of all, just to, re just to repeat, I am very anxious that um, securitization, which is not a stupid thing to do and has been um, a way, actually, of permitting uh, all economies to have more credit and debt than they otherwise have had, and that's not necessarily a stupid thing to have, by the way. Um, we need the following things. We certainly need an um, international clearinghouse um, for 
the trading of credit default swaps, um, in which actually um, somebody is keeping an eye on the credit worthiness of um, the other side of the, of the transaction so that you know that who buys these things and whom an insurance claim may be made on it is actually um, reasonably credit worthy. And actually, one might go as far as the United States and we have a global um, kind of deposit, co deposit corporation in which actually for a small fee, this um, clearinghouse will, in, will um, uh, take a small insurance premium in each transaction and actually guarantee you that the payment will be made in the event of default. Secondly, I think we need an international independent credit rating agency. I think that I think the credit rating agencies have demonstrated that they simply can't be uh, trusted um, to get this right. And actually, some some of their announcements and the timing of their announcement over this crisis have actually made things worse rather than better. Um, I'm I I think that um, this. Um, mark-to-mark -mark accounting, I think the whole way accounting has been structured um, has um, made things worse, not, not better. Um, I think that the capital adequacy regime, as Martin has said, uh, needs to be um, more firmly policed by global authority. But we have uh, an embryonic one, or more than embryonic one, we have the Bank of National Settlements, and, we, and actually we need to give it more power, not less. So there are, you know, around that piece of the story, I think things that could be done and I think will be done. But then you have the other big thing, which Martin has said. I mean, the fact that post the Asian financial crisis, that um, a lot of very poor countries built up $7 trillion worth of foreign exchange reserves over the last decade, most of which they invested in dollar um, assets in New York, uh, and most of which became the liquidity, which actually investment banks were able to find uh, uh, were provided the buyers, the holders of that liquidity were the buyers of these securitized assets, is a fundamental part of the story. And we have to, we have to think through how we are going to um, conduct foreign exchange policy. Um, because I think that if you don't want capital controls, <coughs> then um, we, uh, we're going to have to um, find some way of insisting that countries actually freely float. I mean, the way the, the way the Chinese have pegged the renminbi over the last five years to acquire $2 trillion worth of foreign exchange reserves, causing massive distortions to their domestic banking system, let alone the consequences to the global economy, is a major source of concern to us in the West and, and China. And it, you know, we can't carry on running the global system like that. So I do think that um, either um, a system of... Um, uh, honest floating exchange rates, or because we're going to be half in or half out without it, um, we have to confront the fact that exchange controls and capital controls will come back, and we'll have a fragmentation of globalisation. And I, I think this is where this is the big, big danger of this moment in time. The big, big danger of this moment in time. Though some of you may know Italy well, I, I have been following the, uh, I think, outrageous way that the Italian right have actually blamed foreigners for, um, and Romanians in particular, and Romanian Gypsies in particular, for their problems. And Berlusconi's stock is riding high, he takes advantage of this crisis to make it very difficult indeed for foreigners to actually buy any foreign assets in Italy. Um, and there is a growth of um, ugly nationalisms around the world that if we don't manage very carefully over the next year or two or three, we could actually see... Um, actually just like in the 20s and early 30s, reactions to this, you know, tipping the world into, uh, you know, um, 
rapid deceleration of trade growth, um, long-term stagnation, vicious political movements of right and left, um, national communities appealing to ethnicity and blood as a reason why they should bond together, pointing a figure at the Jewish or Romanian or Gypsy or foreign or black or Muslim other and blaming them actually for the circumstances in which they find themselves. And it really, but I think that, you know, people like uh, Martin and I, and the, the, you know, we've got big responsibility, I think, to, to, to uh, uh, help governments think through uh, what a proper response to this is. You know, the, we've got through, we've, we've, the patient is not going to die on the table, but he's very, very wounded. Just, yeah. just, I'm about to go. I'm, I'm really sorry because it's been very interesting. I agree very strongly with uh, Will's last remarks. I think this is the really big point. At this stage, uh, we have, I think, with luck, stopped the disintegration of the financial system in total. We're going to face a very significant recession, I don't think there's any doubt. There are many policy measures that can be taken <coughs> to mitigate that, and it's worth discussing them. Um, but there are, and this is the crucial point we agree on, as we know from the past experience, very, very substantial dangers in this sort of situation um, if policy goes wrong. One of the most encouraging things of the last two or three weeks is governments did seem to be in charge again. Uh, that, I think, is a part of the solution to this. But there are clearly gr dangers. I disagree with one or two of his recommendations, particularly on mark-to-market. I think helped make it clear how serious it was and allowed us to avoid a Japanese style uh, sitting around and doing nothing. But uh, I think he's identified the really huge challenges we have globally ahead of us. Let me say I've enjoyed this enormously, um, not the situation, uh, but the discussion. Um, well, We've let, all let, got let, to learn a lot from let, it. Let, let, that's my job. I wanted before before we turn the, the questions over to you, and, and uh, Will is going to stay here for a, a little bit longer. Let me thank uh, both speakers for an incredibly illuminating and clear discussion. I particularly thank you now, Martin, because you're going for your incredibly well-observed and detailed commentaries, not just this evening, but in all your columns over many years. And there are many of us who are loyal followers of your writings, and we don't always agree, of course, and you and I have been in this very theatre together disagreeing about most of what you've written. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, there is no shrewder and better observer of this financial system than you, and I want to just express my great appreciation for you coming this evening. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Yeah. Yeah. It was very nice hearing Will Hutton and um, Martin Wolf so much in agreement. Uh, my question, which actually I was dying to ask before Martin Wolf left, is about the link between the financial crisis and the real economy. And I'm not just asking about the consequences for the real economy, we're all aware of that. But the extent to which the financial crisis actually reflects a real crisis in the failure to match, if you like, the growth of productivity that's resulted from the discovery of information technologies and all of that, and the pattern of demand. The fact that demand is so skewed in favor of rich people in the West, uh, that there's such an unequal income, the fact that demand is so heavily dependent on oil, which it, price is going on, and so on and so forth. I mean, so, well, I, you know, I've been thinking, and I'm somebody who gets really um, bored with talking about securitized assets or whatever, though, of course, now suddenly one's interested, that there's going to be a crisis for years because I couldn't see how this skewed real economy could continue. Right. Do you want, can we just pass the, the mic to this random Italian over there who I just noticed has got his passport up saying, I'd like to come back on the Italian point or other points. Daniele Archibugi. Well, Daniele Archibugi, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not going to speak about Italy tonight. Um, actually, I was quite touched that, that uh, Martin Wolf uh, reminded, as many other people do today, my former mentor, Hyman uh, Minsky. Hyman Minsky, actually, I think that many young people, uh, even those who study economics, do not really know uh, what he wrote. Uh, and for many years, uh, he, he discussed about the financial instability and uh, said that, uh, I mean, one of his books is titled Can It Happen Again? And of course, it was uh, the Great Depression. And it was uh, remarkably unpopular and unknown. I remember he gave a conference before to pass away more than 10 years ago at Harvard, the big theater like this one, there were five people only, you know? And uh, uh, somehow you can predict it because if you predict a financial crisis every day, they're not particularly useful, you know? But uh, I mean, uh, Minsky was also a, st a student of Schumpeter. And I would like to ask, do you think there is anything where we can get from Schumpeterian insights about the gales of creative destruction? In other words, this financial crisis can lead to a positive restructuring of the economy, maybe where the financial sector becomes less important than it has been over the Clear. last 10 years. Thank you. We're going to have to have sh shorter questions. Gentleman at the back. Yes, uh, Michael McGowan, I, I'm a, a director of a UK credit union, amongst other things. Mutuals, cooperatives, credit unions, building societies, friendlies, have recently been considered, until recently, dinosaurs. I wondered if you could com comment on how you see the role or even any opportunities for mutuals and this sector in the present situation. Gentleman at the front, yeah. Um, I want to take issue um, with the, what I would have taken to be a kind of mood of self-congratulation. Can you put the mic a bit closer to your mouth? Coming from the panel um, a short while ago over how well the public authorities have handled this crisis. In the view of many quite ordinary people, they've behaved absolutely lamentably why wasn't this sorted out a year ago? Why do we now have a recession in prospect? Why, throughout the last year, 
has no one in the political system sought to interrogate the banks? I mean, That's a clear heaven question. Help us, we still don't know the extent That's of the liabilities. Thank you. Why no, you don't haven't need to go a team of forensic accountants been sent in? Why isn't it being treated with the seriousness of a terrorist attack? Why haven't the banks you. been nationalised? Excuse me. Your total? question is absolutely clear. Why aren't clear. these people speaking louder? Will not run the you. banks. Why aren't they doing something else? Thank a clear question, and it was clear halfway through. Hello. Um, I'd like to ask Will Hatton if he could elaborate on, on why the abolition of Glass-Steagall has uh, had an impact. Um, there have certainly been a number of commentators who have said that pretty much everything that happened over the last few years could have, could have happened anyway. And in fact, that the bailout of Merrill Lynch by Bank of America and various others couldn't, could not have happened under Glass-Steagall conditions. Um, nevertheless, it's taken a lot of blame, including here today. Okay. Thank, that's five questions. We'll try and come back for a final round in a moment, Will. Well, I mean, uh, goodness. I mean, uh, first of all, the, uh, the anger. I mean, look, um, um, I can't tell you the number of times that I have paced up and down uh, my living room asking, uh, I mean, there should be a roundup, you know, and there should be a Black Mariah and uh, a hundred um, key people, and I know who 20 or 30 of them are, should be taken into police questioning. And uh, you know, I know a couple of barristers who would love to have a crack at um, some backboards over um, negligence. Uh, um, and they, we could try. I mean, at least the Americans do that. We do nothing here in Britain. Um, uh, I, and I understand your... The, the passion with which you speak, I tell you, I mean, I wrote The State We're In, and, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've known um, uh, the perfidy um, of what's been taking place um, perhaps better than most, and I've tried my very best to get it out there. And, you know, uh, so I understand the anger. My point is this, is that actually we, we need these people, we need a functioning financial system. We need these people to lend to us. We need, we need to get the credit flows going again. These markets have been virtually frozen for some months. And, um, and I, I, I personally think that um, um, you, you, the point you make is well made, except the Japanese did not move over a 10-year period. Uh, they moved far too late. The Swedes only moved when the system was collapsing. I mean, we did get... Um, you. you I mean, nobody wants to, to spend the half a trillion dollars that has been spent on recapitalizing banks if they can avoid it. Um, so I, I, I share your anger. I, I, I think that you know, the way the system's been run the last five years um, uh, is uh, poor to disgraceful. Um, but you know, like the Irishman, I'm not starting from there, I'm starting from here. So I, I hope that, and I don't think either Martin or I are you know, believers in recession and, and people not having work, for goodness sake, I really struck. So, but I do, and there's a lot of anger out there, and I sympathise with it strongly, passionately. On your point about demutualisation, uh, I argued against the demutualisation of building societies uh, in the mid-1990s, and I was very, uh, Evan Davis, I mean, five months a day programme, actually, to, to say, I told you so, and I did resist saying I told you so, but it was absolutely obvious. And I wrote about it, and I said it, it was absolutely obvious obvious and thank god this on this one i can say i did spot it 
um, that as soon as you demutualize these organizations and they were held by, owned by footloose shareholders, their priorities would change to profit maximization rather than the benefits of, their, of the people who put deposits we would borrow from them. It would obvious that they would get, expand their balance sheets too fast, obvious they would make mistakes, obvious they would get taken over, obvious that a, a whole swathe of great regional lending institutions that had been built up in the 19th century and were very important to the towns and cities in which they were um, embedded were going to be lost to um, either British or multinational banks. I said it, I argued it, and I was regarded as a lunatic maverick. You know, so, and um, uh, there is scope. Um, I noticed the co-op are negotiating with, I think, the Britannia. Um, the nationwide have done very, very well. And there is scope, actually, for these building societies to come back. They are, some of them are incredibly small. And uh, if you, if you um, why not, if you agree with this, actually open a deposit with them now. But you are, you know, there is scope, I think, for the, for the mutual. Um, and I think the, the lack of trust in our banking system now, you know, I mean, people have worried for the first time in their lives whether the money is safe in the bank. And some people have actually, um, who were made the mistake to kind of bank with uh, the Icelandic banks have actually had their money frozen. They can't get at it for some weeks. Um, the lack of trust in the investment institutions in this country has now reached calamity low levels. And I think the mutuals will be, can, can benefit from that. That's certainly the view of the Co-op and the Britannia. Um, uh, what about this point about um, Glass-Steagall? Look, um, Glass-Steagall proved to be part of the, I mean, the fix, you're quite right, was enabled because the, the Glass-Steagall doesn't exist. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, it was a good idea. I must have met so many chief executives um, over the last five years who said, um, there they were, and into their room came the investment banks giving their pitch. And, you know, what they wanted was they wanted, they wanted to do the deal. They said, you know, if you want to buy XYZ company, here, here's our acquisitions team. They're going to help you do this big deal. And by the way, if you want short-term credit, you know, our bank is going to do it for you. We want, well, we, want the whole, we want you to buy the whole package from us. And there's no doubt about it. Um, the incentives in that were fast. People made stunning sums of money from um, bringing those deals off and winning, the, uh, winning the, those pictures in that way. And they couldn't have done it if the institutions were separate rather than together. And I think it was a, uh, I have no doubt that some 21st century version of separating commercial investment banking is going to actually A, happen and B, is correct. Um, on this point about creative destruction, yeah, I mean, I do think that um, we've over-relied on the financial service industry in the United Kingdom. We've undervalued um, manufacturing uh, and actually the knowledge economy more generally. And one of the good things about what is taking place is twofold. One, I think that the banks that have got public stakes in them will actually, I think, behave differently from the way commercial banks have behaved in the past. I think they will be um, more supportive of distressed companies in this downturn. I think they will be, and I think they will lend on better terms once the markets unfreeze to the kinds of sectors and companies that we would be good for them to lend to. It's a political maturity transformation, taking short-term deposits and long-term loans was never a neutral political and social decision. It was never, ever neutral. And we lived in a, fiction, in a fictional world in which it was, uh, and now actually we understand the politics of it better as a national community. And actually some of, those, some of the firms uh, that are 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 strong 
all over the country who found it very difficult to get uh, more than working capital uh, um, from the banks, I think, will have a better deal. And that is one good thing. And the second good thing, I think, is that we will uh, want a more balanced economy than the one we have had. And actually, the story um, that actually um, systemically markets don't make mistakes and that only states make mistakes is, I think, not going to be plausible for the foreseeable future. And for me, who believes that in a mixed economy, uh, a Keynesian approach to economic management, that is a huge, fantastic moment. I've waited 30 years for it. Thank God it's happened. Um, <laughs> um, and lastly, there's the point that uh, Mary Caldor made uh, about the, the relationship between the real economy and the financial economy. And uh, a kind of complicated point, really. Uh, and this, you know, and the, the, the pattern of demand in the West and the way things have been pulled out of place by an overblown financial sector kind of um, destroyed not just the domestic economy but the, the, the international economy. Um, uh, what can I say um, but uh, in many ways to um, agree? My view, though, what is really hard, though, is to think about how you've designed something that would behave differently. You know, I want to. I mean, one of the things I want to do here at the LSE, with you and David and the and, the, and this and with other colleagues uh, in the various centres uh, of excellence in this place, is I think we have a real obligation to try and think through what the international framework should be. I mean, I can. I've got a fairly good idea about about what to do about securitisation and banking practice, but capital flows, exchange rates, debt relief, development. Um, my God, you know, it all hooks up. Um, we need actually to think through what a comprehensive solution um, would, 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 would look like. And we don't have a good template. What Gordon Brown has got on the table is not adequate. Thank you. Um, let's, let's get on with it. Yeah, we're going to try. <laughs> we're going to try. There, there, we only have five more minutes. It's not because uh, I want to stop, but uh, staff have to go home and the building, this lecture hall, gets closed down at eight. So I'm just going to take two or three very brief questions, okay? And I'm afraid if you think it's easy, it's going to be utterly random. So where does the mic down here? Gentleman right in front of me. I guess it's not entirely random. <coughs> right in front of me. And then I'll come straight to the top. I'm James Heath. I, uh, I'm a consultant to the pension industry. Uh, Robert Peston's come into for some criticism in, in how he's been able to effectively be the RNS mouthpiece of the government. And I note your comments on mark-to-market accounting, but obviously that makes everything much more volatile, and I, I like your opinion on the role of responsibility of journalism when we have this sort of event going on. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And then two brief questions at the top. Brief <coughs> questions, yes. Mr. Hutton, you said that you fear a fragmentation of the financial system. Why do you still fear this if uh, obviously the internationalization was part of the problem which now makes us um, this problem, and why do you still fear this, fragment, uh, this fragmentation? That's my question. Okay. Yeah, and the gentleman in front of you, yeah. Yeah, keep your hands up higher. Yeah, exactly, you. Thank you. Thank you. Next month, the first financial summit will likely be held in the U.S. to address the ongoing global financial crisis. My question is, how do you perceive the proposed summit? What is the EU's intent towards the summit? What possible fruits can the summit produce? And also, finally, what kind of role can China play? in the current fi uh, financial crisis. Thank you. That's, I think a good question. Three, three short questions yeah. in three minutes. Right, a minute each. Um, 
journalism and this crisis, it has been, I think, uh, tricky for everybody. I mean, I've, I've been a, I've, I've written columns and I've commented on television and radio, and you know, occasionally, but you, know, you facts fall into your possession, which you know um, that if you broadcast, um, you could create, you know, you could make matters much, much worse. I mean, I, I, I knew, um, as one or two others did. Um, how severe the crisis was in the interbank market, and how difficult um, HBOS and Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, and indeed towards the end, Lloyd's TSB were finding it, um, particularly though HBOS and Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, and there was a run on the banks in the interbank market. And you know, the open question was, you know, should you name which banks the runs on, or just talk about a run on the interbank market? Should you say uh, in uh, an interview? Um, uh, we are in a situation where um, uh, major, should you, should you say, we're in a situation where major institutions um, cannot get more, can, are having to get uh, lending for longer than 24 hours from the Bank of England because they can't get it from other banks because banks won't lend to them because they so doubt their creditworthiness. And by the way, if you're watching, let me tell you who they are so you can get your money out, and they are. Or should you just confine yourself to saying what I just said? And it was uh, it was very I mean, steering that line was very tricky. And, and I know, mo I mean, I, I think that um, uh, and I I mean I I think that um, actually <coughs> the um, uh, the BBC's <coughs> um, journalism was um, pretty good. I'd wish that Robert Peston to have just you know slight word of criticism. I. Because on the in the main, he had had an amazing network. He he brought stories into the public domain uh, very fast. He knew what he was talking about. He analysed it clearly and well. You know what more do you want actually? Um, and a lot of a, a, a lot of newspapers would have loved to have had um, a Robert Peston with um, Robert Peston type scoops. And some of the criticism that he's got, you know, should he have told the world as soon as he did that there was a plan for H Boss and Lloyd's TSB to merge? which was market-sensitive, dum-da-dum-da-dum, should he have said some things in his blogs? I mean, frankly, I think um, some of this criticism coming from the financial community, given the pickle they landed us all in, was a bit rich. And one of the things that I, one of the richest things I, um, was um, the chief executives of the um, big London clearing banks accusing the government of dithering on the Tuesday before announcing the rescue package on the Wednesday, when you thought, I mean, bloody hell, I mean, you guys have got us here. We're talking about spending fifty billion pounds. If the Treasury feel they need a few hours <laughs> to shape this in a way which actually protects the taxpayer, um, that's fine by me. And don't ride this tiger of dithering. I mean, the action the British government is going to take is more um, is faster than anyone else and more aggressive. I mean, just hold your horses. So some of the criticism level against Robert, Robert Peston I think, um, is unfair. He's done bloody well. I mean, occasionally. Um, I think it is tricky, however, when one voice becomes so dominant as the only voice. I mean, on, some, on one or two things, I think, for example, Robert Roberts' view that we need to get back to kind of relationship banking of 1950s style as fast as we possibly can, which has become the kind of accepted wisdom, um, is a tricky thing because there aren't people around sufficiently, either in the BBC with the knowledge or actually in the wider uh, commenting community to, to challenge some of his views. But basically, you know. I think Robert Peston had a bloody good crisis. Congratulations. We were lucky to have him, is basically my view. And I think some of the criticisms leveled against him uh, are unfair. Um, and I, that said, the, uh, 
but I'll move on quickly because we've only got two more minutes. Um, what about um, uh, what about this question about um, uh, what's the EU summit for and why do I fear internationalisation? Look, I global. I mean, it's very easy, you know, in 2008 to say the last 16 years have been crap. It's all been worthless. But actually, there's been a great deal of prosperity, a great deal of employment has been won, a great deal of people have, have led much better lives, both in Britain and actually uh, in the less developed world as a consequence of globalization. Um, nobody ever got rich in any country without trade rising. It could be the Silk Road in the uh, 5th century um, AD. Uh, it could be uh, wherever you find growth, wherever you find prosperity, you find trade. You find countries trading one with another. It is the indispensable um, prop to prosperity. And if we, if we disintegrate into, into fragments and trading goes south and volumes of traded goods go south, nobody will get rich anywhere in poor countries and rich countries alike. And poor countries will feel the will, will feel it much much uh, worse than, than rich countries. So you know, globalization is um, a is a good. Uh, it is a benefit. What's been wrong about globalization is it's uh, the lack of imagination of its governance, and indeed in some quarters the refusal to accept that it requires governance. Um, and, and, and regulation and rules that are policed. That's what's wrong, and that's what I've tried to discuss tonight. That's why I'm concerned about what may take place in the next two or three years. And by the way, when you get fragmentation, you get stories about why one should fragment. And I find the stories about why one should fragment are even more menacing than the act of fragmentation itself. Because as I said, those stories will be about the dread other, the foreigner, the people with different creeds, beliefs, colors of skins than yourselves. It will be an extremely unpleasant, noxious environment, which none of us will like. So don't, be, don't go with a fashionable line that actually fragmentation and regional blocks and the rest of it is good news. It's really bad news. Just like house prices halving is bad news. Believe me, there's not prosperity in a world in which house prices halve and halve again. We don't want them as stupidly priced as they were in 2007, but you don't want them to collapse in value. A world in which they collapse in value is because nobody can afford to buy them, for Christ's sake. Um, uh, and that's not good news. Um, and what should, the, how, what should the EU bring to the party um, in any discussion? And, um, and China. And in, China. In 30 seconds. Um, 30. <laughs> let's, do it in, let's do it in 10. Um, Look, I, I think the EU is, a, is an incredibly imperfect um, multilateral organization, but it's the least bad we've got on the face of the globe. And actually, some of the ways the EU has approached um, managing the euro, managing the bailout, managing its trade relations and financial relationships, we could do well to try and reproduce them at a global scale. I think we're going to introduce a, a college of regulators in the EU um, in the financial system. Let's do that globally. A lot of the EU has got quite a lot to offer, I think, a Bretton Woods too. Um, as for China, I think that, I think that um, my line on China remains uh, the line it's always been. China is um, strong in the sense it's got $2 trillion worth of foreign exchange reserves, but in almost every other circumstance, it's weak. And the, uh, we can't ask and we shouldn't ask 
um, 1.4 um, billion people whose per capita incomes are $2,000 a head, uh, 800 million of whom are living in abject poverty to kind of shoulder um, the burden of organizing an international order to benefit the West. We really shouldn't. This has got to be um, driven by, by, the, by the West. It's got to be fairly organized. We've got to bring them into the decision-making process. But um, the, the burden of this lies with the rich countries, um, not with the poor. Thank you. remains for me to say two things. I mean, I would like to thank Will again because Will has made an outstanding contribution to economic journalism for, for three decades and he brought much of that together this evening and I think it was a real tour de force, Will. And the second thing I'd like to say just by way of notice is that at 6.30 on Wednesday there's another Miliband lecture where Anthony Giddens, the former director of the LSE and an outstanding sociologist is going to talk about the politics of climate change. The argument is we have the science, but we have no politics and no way of yet knowing how we're going to get from the science, from the knowledge, to practical change on the ground. So that's 6.30 on Wednesday. Good night.